School is about much more than just the acquisition of knowledge. It is about, you know, the, the development of, of pro-social behaviours. It's about, you know, that idea of learning as a shared experience. The purpose of education needs to shift so that we are thinking about much more collaborative outcomes and, you know, and about shared futures. We're looking at more classroom time being given to the development of, of you know, particular skill sets. There are certain things that, that can be removed from the curriculum because they can be accessed in other ways. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Dominic Register. Dominic is a program director at Salzburg Global Seminar. He's responsible for designing, developing, and implementing programs on education, sustainability, and innovation. Prior to this, he worked with the British Council for 14 years, initially on programs promoting education cooperation between the UK, China, Russia, and Japan. He is also a member of the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Commission on Education and Communication, and, as we'll hear more, a member of the Executive Committee for Karanga, the Global Alliance for Social-Emotional Learning and Life Skills. I'm sure you'll find what Dominic has to say about the importance and centrality of socio-emotional learning in terms of preparing young learners, but also adults, for the world of today and tomorrow, how it prepares them for work, of course, but also personal lives, not only just combating mental illness, but also providing a platform for fulfillment, happiness, and the ability to be comfortable with oneself. Without further ado, I'll leave room for my conversation with Dominic. Well, hi, Dominic. Thanks so much for being part of our podcast. Uh, really, I'm really interested in, uh, in speaking with you. I heard you on the Luca Perry uh, podcast, and uh, you had a lot to say so much about the role of, uh, in terms of learning, of socio-emotional learning. Also, you spoke a lot about the common good, which is something that uh, we're very interested in on this podcast and in some of the blogs that we write about. So wanted to speak with you a little bit about what you've been thinking about, what the roles that you've been having, some of the actions that you've been taking. Uh, and my first question is, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Uh, so I'm Dominic Register. I am originally from the UK, but now live in Salzburg in Austria. And I'm a program director at a nonprofit called Salzburg Global Seminar. And I'm also part of the executive committee for the Global Alliance for Social Emotional Learning and Life Skills, Karanga, which I helped start a couple of years ago. And then I do various other bits and pieces of consultancy and serve as a director on a nonprofit called the Amal Alliance. Tell us a little bit about uh, maybe some of the projects that you've been, because you, you've got quite a few, uh, an array of things that you're working on. What are some of the things that, that really hold dear to you and, and make you uh, really excited to get up in the morning? Sure. And I, I suppose I didn't really answer your question about how, how I try to make a difference. I'm sorry. So it's getting, getting off to a bad start on the podcast by not answering um, your first question. But I suppose maybe that connects to the project. So with you know, Salzburg Global is Subside uh, Global Seminar is 75 years old next year. For most of our history, we've been primarily a strategic convening organization. So bringing together relatively small groups of people who are working on a common problem, but coming at that problem from very different starting points. And what we try to do is create conditions that can lead to future collaborations that happen outside of the Salzburg Global Program. So bringing together diverse groups who don't know each other beforehand, but you know, we create the right conditions. When we do it well, we create the right conditions that get that group to a place of trust and understanding so that they will want to continue to collaborate beyond the Salzburg programming. In the last 15 months, we obviously haven't been bringing groups 
physically together here, um, but we've been doing a lot of that work online. We've also been looking at different ways of seeding collaboration by working with networks, uh, by working on larger scale conferences that are more about the dissemination of new thinking rather than the creation of new ideas. And I love those kind of programs, you know, when when you can design it well and you have a you know a very human centered design approach to it, and then you know you bring the right people together and you can see you know the sparks beginning and the collaboration beginning in the programming. So for Salzburg Global, I have two main portfolios of work. One is around education, and the other is around the future of cities. And then they both have sort of multiple spin-off initiatives and, you know, sub-convenings, want a better phrase. But most of the education work over the last four or five years has sort of focused on, on one of two themes and occasionally they interconnect, sometimes they interconnect. So there's been a whole body of work that's looked at education and social justice through a variety of different lenses and different geographies, different stages of education, different outcomes, you know, representation and inclusion of different communities in education. And then sort of separately, there's been a body of work looking at education and whole child development with a particular focus on social and emotional learning. And then, you know, on many occasions, the, the social justice and the social and emotional learning have interconnected uh, very nicely. Stephanie Jones, who's um, a professor of the the director of the Easel Lab and a professor at Harvard, has a really good line about you know the, the differences and similarities between social justice and social and emotional learning. Now, social justice in education is really about educating all children, and social and emotional learning is about educating the whole child or all of the child. And so, you know, the kind of holy grail in some ways is how do you educate the whole child for all of the children who you're trying to engage with. And I suppose that that's a kind of a useful framing for a lot of what we've been trying to do and a lot of the policy conversations we've been having. And I want to pick that up, particularly about the the, the city planning piece, because that will probably spill over into sustainability, which also connects with socio-emotional and, 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 and socioeconomic. But the uh, question that we ask all uh, our, uh, our guest contributors is, is, how do you define learning? It, it's a really interesting, this is not to not answer your question, but I think by way of, you know, kind of, it is a really interesting time in education reform. And I think our understanding of learning is evolving because of that. And, you know, if learning historically has been you know, the, the acquisition of knowledge, you know, it's been about developing understanding and the acquisition of knowledge, I think. And what, you know, what we are experiencing in many many, many parts of the world, and I think this is accelerating at the moment, is, you know, a slight shift from primary purpose of education being about the acquisition of knowledge to a much greater understanding of the importance of the acquisition of skills and, you know, how do you apply that knowledge? So almost like the reintroduction of ethical framing to education. And I think, you know, that's, it's absolutely necessary and long overdue, you know, the, the education systems that you and I were part of when we were at school. And I, you know, I imagine we're very much, you know, I grew up in um, the South of England, just outside of London, you know, and it was very much organized around the, econ- the dominant economic model of the time, you know, and you were kind of being prepared for certain kinds of career in lots and lots of different ways. And, you know, I had a great time at school and got a lot out of my education, but it was very much along that track. And that was true for the vast majority of people growing up, you know, in the, in Europe and North America and many other parts of the world in the 1980s and 1990s and the beginning of this century. I think what, what we're now seeing is, you know, an overdue reckoning with the fact that that economic model has created lo- lots of problems for global society. This kind of emphasis on consumption and, um, you know, and all the other things that come with that capitalist framework. And what we're now 
seeing as the beginnings of a new education paradigm or a new approach to education, which will reflect how the economy and how society and how our human interactions have to shift in the next part of this century, if we're to have you know, a significant chance as a species of dealing with those genuinely existential challenges which are coming, like you know, the climate crisis being the most obvious manifestation of that. And when you mention skills, what do you mean by that? What are some of the skills that are most important as we move forward? So with the work that we in Salzburg and with Karanga have been doing around social and emotional learning, we've, you know, we've, we've looked a lot at the, the, the core skills, the fundamental skills, which are part of social and emotional learning and how it feels. And there's a growing body of evidence that positions them as, as an absolutely fundamental and legitimate part of the response to multiple different challenges that we're facing. So, I, you know, depending on who you're talking with and who you were trying to influence, there's a, a you know a, a great body of research and a really compelling argument that you can make about social and emotional skills being fundamental for the workforce of tomorrow to do the kinds of jobs that won't be automated or outsourced to AI in the near future. So skills, you know, skills which still define us as being uniquely human. Um, skills that can't be outsourced. So things like empathy as a skill, things like um, critical thinking and creativity, things like the ability to communicate complexity across different groups. All of those, you know, these are all core SEL, social and emotional learning skills and have been for a long time. They're also the skills that analysis from the World Economic Forum a couple of years ago, analysis from McKinsey a couple of years ago, show employers are identifying as being critical for the workforce of tomorrow. So the more that we can and help young people in education now develop these skills um, and practice them and you know demonstrate that they can do them, the better their employability chances will be in the near future. Completely separately to the kind of employability argument or the, the, the rationale for that, you know, for social and emotional learning for the workforce of tomorrow. There's a you know a totally different entry point in the conversation when you look at um you know mental health, for example. And I think in in 2016, the World Health Organization put out a report that said, based on current trends, depression would be the single largest cause of adolescent illness and disability globally by 2030. It was obviously pre-pandemic. You know, a lot of that has been accelerated because of experiences of lockdown and everything else in the last 15 months. There's also a really good body of evidence that shows how the early introduction of social and emotional learning approaches in education can help young people grow up with a kind of mental architecture that will let them find their way through or around later life mental health challenges. You've got a kind of compelling public health, mental health argument for this kind of approach in education. And you can sort of develop the argument out for multiple other big societal challenges, you know, whether that is around divided societies, community cohesion, navigating diversity and difference. You know, a lot of our societies are becoming more fluid in different ways, um, helping young people develop a sense of identity that lets them feel confident in who they are, but then also, you know, very open and willing to engage with people who have very different backgrounds. You know, so a lot of the things that that we have seen become really major flashpoints or social issues of social tension in the last year. Social and emotional learning can help all sides navigate their way through these areas of difference. And I, and I guess there is a, the, these parallel structures or, or the, these rail tracks of, uh, of, of where we are building these skills, because you brought up being ready for the workforce. And, and then you brought up, you know, fighting uh, or, or making sure we don't have mental, mental illness. And, and of course, the flip side of that is making sure 
people as they grow up are, are fulfilled and happy and, and find joy in, in, uh, in their experiences. I guess my question is, this idea of skills for the workforce, how does that work with the idea of personal fulfillment? And, and let, me, let me backtrack just a little bit. What, what I fear is that if we keep thinking about preparing kids for the workforce, we're really feeding into this meritocratic system of you got to work really hard, you got to work really hard, go to the best university, work really hard. And oh, by the way, your kids have to also work really hard because if they don't go back to the best university or they don't go to the best schools, it says a lot about you as a parent. So, so how do we work with these tensions of a society where you know, there, there's this meritocratic elite that has to go through these, jump through these hoops, but at the same time, working with mental health that, that allows us to be fulfilled and happy and free. So I want to be, be really clear that the, the reason why social and emotional learning feels like such an important education reform topic at the moment is because it, it's a legitimate part of the solution to multiple challenges. So there's absolutely a workforce argument, which is going to get traction with some policymakers, with some parents, with some um, education institutions, you know, as a pathway into university, whatever it might be. And I don't think that argument in any way delegitimizes the relevance of social emotional learning to mental health or to identity or to, you know, helping design a life of purpose where you do feel fulfilled and you can think about, you know, the role that you want to play in society or in your life. I think this is why social emotional learning is, you know, is having such a moment as it were, it's because it is, you know, part of multiple solutions. And we need to be careful that we don't overly lead with the, you know, the workforce argument, because then you're sort of instrumentalizing something which is, you know, I think also really important for, you know, how do we, you know, the, the way in which society, the way in which populations will work together to, to engage with some of the, the, the sort of societal behavioral shifts that need to happen in order to meet the climate crisis challenge or, you know, to meet the, so, the sustainable development goal targets. I think, you know, when the SDGs were being confirmed, the Brookings Institute published a really interesting blog so this was back in 2015, 2016, that was talking about the skills that populations will need to have in greater abundance if we are to have any chance of meeting the sustainable development goals. And, you know, it, it overlapped very closely with a lot of the core social and emotional learning kinds of skills. So, I, yeah, I think it doesn't, it doesn't, legit, it doesn't um, delegitimize the sort of the social purpose value of SEL, if, if you talk about workforce readiness as well, it's a kind of, it's a bonus, as it were, that, you know, that it is that the same core group of skills are coming into such high demand across multiple different areas of life. And I guess we have to make sure that we keep those connected rather than, than have them be separated or which is always a risk. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about what some of these social emotional learning skills are. Like, maybe, I know you brought up a, a few of them, but what would that look like in terms of the learning experiences of, uh, of, of young learners, of students in a class individually? How does that work? What, what are some of the work that you're doing in order to, uh, to, to foster these? So one of, the, one of the things which is made, I think one of the things, one of the reasons why social emotional, there isn't a kind of global core social and emotional learning curriculum is because local context and local cultural conditions are really important. So um, I have a Japanese friend who, who uses assertiveness 
as a kind of good micro example of this, that assertiveness features in some social and emotional learning frameworks. You know, it's about confidence, about being able to put yourself forward, but different societies attach very different degrees of importance to assertiveness. So in, in East Asian, so my Japanese friend was saying, you know, assertiveness is viewed very differently to in North America, where he lived and worked until recently. And so, you know, what one of the things to be cautious about with social and emotional learning is that we're not advocating for you know, for one curriculum or for one approach. So it will look different in different contexts. But I think, you know, the so with, with that caveat in place, there's, you know, almost all social and emotional learning programs that I've had the chance to, to look at or learn about, you know, include sort of skills that help you live with yourself or understand yourself or, or know yourself and the role that you want to play, skills that are about living and working with others and skills that are going to be about shaping the life that you want to lead. So there's kind of those three, there's the sort of internal facing, there's the the external in terms of relational, and then there's the external in terms of, of, of life trajectory or career path. And so if we're no longer focusing on the acquisition of content and we're putting socio-emotional learning more at the center, you know, regardless of what the list is, what are some of the, perhaps uh, the things that like that happen in schools or in learning environments or in the family or wherever it might happen because it's a 24-7 job in order to foster and to strengthen these these skills? What, what are some of the things that we need to do differently now that we weren't doing before or maybe the same things, but just better? Yeah, just to, to kind of go back to how you opened the question, I don't think, I think we also need to be very cautious about, you know, a kind of zero sum thinking about this kind of education reform, that this isn't to detract from the acquisition of knowledge or the importance, you know, the, the, that component of schooling place. I think this needs to be in, addi- in addition to that. And that's the, you know, the kind of the, the recalibration, which lots of education systems are beginning to think about is, you know, we need to do we need to do slightly more of the social, the emotional, the, the creative um, skills development, as well as the knowledge acquisition. Because the knowledge acquisition is, you know, it's obviously re- you know, enormously important for a sense of societal identity, for components of community cohesion, for the transmission of a kind of corpus of, of understanding about who we are and our shared past and moving to the future. So it, it's not, you know, it, I think it becomes a, it very quickly becomes a false dichotomy if you start to think about, you know, one that needs to happen at the expense of the other. And, and, and maybe I should have clarified what I meant. Uh, and this is because maybe I, I jumped a little bit uh, too fast on that. I, I guess it's the idea that content in itself is free. You can get it anywhere. If you want to look up something, you just go on YouTube. I was, uh, somebody brought up the idea of something the other day. I go up on YouTube and I, and I learn about it. So school isn't necessarily needed anymore as a vehicle to impart content but it does teach us what to do with that content and how to treat it, how to extract it, sort it, evaluate it, and also apply it. So it's it's a bit different now. And I guess that's that's the specifics I want. It's not going against that knowledge. I don't want to make that that binary. But yeah. but it's just it's just different, right? It's the, the skills that we do with the content rather than purely acquiring content. And you know the experiences of so many schools and and students over the last fifteen months. You know, I think are, have have created really interesting conditions for thinking about the fundamental purpose of of school, and we're seeing that played out in you know in lots of different d- discussion arena and lots of kind of think pieces that you know it, 
school is about much more than just the acquisition of knowledge. It is about, you know, the, the development of, of pro-social behaviors. It's about, you know, that idea of learning as a, as a shared experience in many, many ways. And I mean, you know, you work in a school, so you're much closer to this than I am, but have you seen that, that shift beginning with your students and with the parents of the students? In all frankness, not so much. And this is, you know, something else that, that I'd love to explore with you as we talk about these shifts in the paradigm that you brought up earlier is that I, I sometimes worry that, you know, we've got a tribe here that keeps talking to each other, but sometimes loses touch with the 99% out there who, who are still very traditional and believe in scores. Uh, I'll give you an example. Just this weekend, I saw in the Sunday Times that they were banning mobile phones in the UK. A complete ban of mobile phones because it's a distraction. Now, I, I get that it's a distraction, I get the fact that there's a lot of issues in state schools in terms of uh, just behavior, whatever you want to say. But the phone in itself isn't the enemy, especially if it allows us to create, especially if it allows us to to look up things quickly. Uh, it, but it's it's the way it's being used. And I guess my that upset me or, or, or made me question. But but the thing that really triggered me was the fact that they said that schools that ban mobile phones got better test scores, better grade averages better results on the, it was so quantified in terms of the learning that it was what was measured that I thought, gosh, you know, there's still such a long way to go. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I don't necessarily see it, but you know, I mean, for, for all my experience is anecdotal, clearly. I haven't seen that story, but I'll look it up and it would be interesting because, you know, of the four education systems in the UK, then they're moving in in quite different directions in some ways. And, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of points of contact with the education, you know, with the way the curriculum is evolving and the kind of understanding of the purpose of education in Scotland and Wales and England and Northern Ireland are in a slightly different place around that. So it would be interesting to see if that plan, if that ban is blanket UK or if it was just in um, England, which I think has a, I think it's fair to say has a more traditional or conservative conceptualization of the fundamental purpose of education at the moment. I, I haven't lived or worked in England for a long time, so I'm saying that as an outsider. And that's it, right? I mean, and, you know, in France, it's the same thing, very traditional. I mean, if, uh, you know, I, I grew up in France and, and I promise you that they're doing the same thing as they did when I was in school in the 1980s, red pen, green pen, black pen, and, and so forth. And the United States, of course, it's all about state testing and that's what keep schools open. Um, I mean, that's changed a little bit, but certainly that's very, very prominent. So I, I guess it goes back to the question about that shift in education in the paradigm. Where does it start? Does it start at the fringes? Does it start in social movements that, that kind of independent schools, the, these places on the fringe that have more room to, 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 to change? Or does it go at the core at the government policy level? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, you know, all, all of the, any national education system is a really complex ecosystem. So, you know, the, it's going to be relatively easy, I imagine, to find exceptions to any general statement. So, you know, I'm certain that there will, there will be examples of brilliant, progressive, social and emotional learning oriented curricular or classrooms, you know, in loads of different parts of, of England or, or in France. It's just, it's not the, the dominant narrative, is it? I mean, the, you know, the presence of Montessori uh, kindergartens and primary schools, you know, both, both those countries are a good example of that. In terms of where the change begins, I, I think, you know, it, again, it's different in very different places. What, what we have tried to do with a lot of the Salzburg programming and with, with a lot of Karanga's work and the makeup of Karanga's steering committee is 
try to reflect the fact that change can begin in such a wide variety of different places. So we've got some people, you know, who are in the Ministry of Education in their respective country, you know, and who are very much interested in trying to affect change from the inside of the system. We've got other people, you know, who are academics who are looking at assessment as, you know, a critical component that needs to be un- unblocked want of a better phrase, before the reform can happen, or others who are primarily concerned with teacher training and teacher recruitment, or with curriculum content. We've got others who are leading institutions, you know, so our school leaders themselves, or um, and are really interested in this, you know, to help their students with the, the best life chances that they can offer them. Others who are, you know, NGOs who are looking at, so I think, you know, the, the reform work, having an ecosystem approach to education reform is really valuable because there's there's lots of learning that can happen across systems that start in different places you know so and this is this is how we you know d- develop some of those advocacy arguments that we've tried to make as universal as possible that you know in certain contexts the, the catalyst for the reform may well have been you know an economic analysis of you know of the needs of the the country's economy in the near futures and others, it may well have started with the mental health or community cohesion or, you know, ed- education equity is another really legitimate entry point for social and emotional learning. Once the change has started or once you've got a group of people, irrespective of the role that they play in their education system, advocating for change, what, you know, what an initiative like Karanga tries to do is connect those people with similarly intentioned people in other parts of the world so that we can start to, you know, to get this momentum, this movement and, you know, and think about, you know, how can we support one another across different change agenda, recognizing that, you know, there are multiple entry points into this in the ecosystem. And I think you mentioned as well uh, the connections between socioeconomic injustice, climate crisis, uh, personal uh, despair or anomia or whatever it might be and, 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 and just this how do you see this uh, being interconnected? Because we don't always see Black Lives Matter being connected with climate crisis, but you could definitely make those connections without very much, uh, without trying very hard if, uh, if you see it through the right lens. The most eloquent person I've heard talk about this is Tony Jackson and Dr. Anton Jackson from the Asia Society, who has written extensively about it. And, and this, I've heard him speak about it on a couple of occasions. And he has a really, really well-developed Argument, which I'm, I hope I'm going to do justice to, if I try and you know say it back to you now. But you know, there is a there is a direct connection between. Um, so, so Tony's starting point, I think, was Black Lives Matters and you know post George Floyd murder. Thinking, you know, thinking about how is it that racism is still such a challenge, and you know, there's still so much reckoning that needs to happen with historic racial injustice and, and present manifestations of racial injustice. Um, so, there's a through line that connects people who still have a racist mentality with people who deny the climate crisis, with people who are against so many of the public health um, interventions during the COVID crisis. And, and in Tony's framing, you know, a lot of that is about having a hegemonic mindset or a dominant mindset where you, you know, your experience of education has, has got you to a point where you are thinking in a zero-sum way that there need to be winners and losers in in life and that what you, you know, your need, you know, whether that is about your individual freedom or your need to dominate someone else for your own, whatever purpose that is, is more important than other people's 
um, equivalent rights or values. And I think it's a really good, it's a really interesting argument to think through because it, it also helps open up conversations about how the purpose of education needs to shift so that we are thinking about much more collaborative outcomes and, you know, and about shared futures and, you know, and how do we, how does education help people design, you know, the role that they want to play to contribute to society. There's a brilliant um, organization in New Zealand called The Learner First, led by a fantastic woman who's, who's part of Karanga as well called Joanne McCookin. And they, they've done a lot of work around a, a contributing curriculum, um, which is exactly this. How do you take, you know, lo- lots of social and emotional learning approaches, lots of other really interesting innovations in education at the moment, and think about, you know, how it helps shape purpose or what you want to give back um, to your society. And another brilliant um manifestation of that was work that the um, Smithsonian Centre for Science Education did a couple of years ago, led by uh, Carol O'Donnell, and looking at a kind of new high school science approach where it was around, it was a sort of triangulation approach of looking at high school science content, looking at challenges that the Sustainable Development Goals were looking to address, and then thinking about how those challenges played out locally in your neighbourhood, and how could you use what you were learning at high school to address some of those SDG challenges. So there was a kind of social and emotional learning vector that came in as well around communicating with the public, around team working and building support for this from local business, from local religious leaders, you know, other other adults or significant stakeholders in the in the project that you wanted to move forward and and led to some really good um, case studies which are on the Smithsonian website around that you know the kind of application of what you're learning in school to a local challenge is a I think a really great example of you know of contributing back and thinking about purpose and this purpose is something that um it seems to be coming I, I think this there's a tipping point right now or or we're at a, we're at a stage where Purpose is really going to be something that's talked about more and more, particularly with the climate crisis, particularly about the fact that, you know, that this meta-modernist view of, you know, we live uh, between irony and, and naivete and we, and we need to, to, to take this forward and, and, and find a reason, but we don't have a reason. It's, there's a huge cultural shift. And, and I wonder how much the new generation is thinking about uh, its own role in society and and how it's going to have to do something for a purpose, having a reason to do something rather than this postmodernist, nihilistic, you know, what's the point? And, and I want to bring it back also to this hegemonic mindset that I think is really fascinating that you brought about. We could even maybe go a little bit further and talk about this anthropocentric mindset, right? About how humans, we, we, we can take whatever we want from nature and not give back to, to, to nature or this, you know, refuse the eco-reciprocity that, that might be so important for the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think in another another piece, Tony talks about the kind of evolutionary origins of this m- mindset and how you know it's sort of it's about a very deep historical sense of the struggle for survival and that you know what what we need now in some ways and I indeed these are my words rather than Tony's so they'll be less less to the point but you know it, it is about reframing that challenge, you know, think, thinking in new ways about, you know, the, the, the purpose of education and how that's going to help move us forward as a species from, you know, all of these different challenges that we're facing. You know, there's, there's a lot written already about how 2020 is this kind of unique year of convergent crises where in addition to the pandemic, or, or maybe, you know, it was because of the light that the pandemic shone on 
so many issues of societal inequality. You've got this, you know, significant es- escalation of the the struggle for reckoning with historic racial injustice because of the George Floyd murder in the US, but then rippling around the world and, you know, in many, many other countries. You've also got, you know, the kind of acceleration of the impact of extreme weather events on people's lives and all the chaos that that is already causing and will continue to cause if we don't shift how we behave. You've got the, you know, the, the kind of remarkable range of reactions to public health measures you know, around wearing a mask, around social distancing, all of these things and how polarizing that became. And then, you know, the, the kind of reckoning with historic injustice. Um, so thinking about, you know, the, the um, roads must fall in the UK and the, the kind of pulling down of statues and the kind of contested histories reckoning. So all of these, you know, different societal crisis focal points that are happening so close to one another. There is, there is you know, that sense, you know, what, will, it, will it be a landmark here in terms of being able to affect really significant positive change? And one of the things that, or two words that you never brought up were literacy and numeracy and some of these ways of thinking. What's changed? I mean, clearly we need literacy in order to access some of these ideas. Yeah. But it seems like things are shifting in terms of what needs to happen for the learning and for, for the society to, to overcome some of these crises? Going back to what we were saying a few minutes ago about how you know, the, the, the acquisition of literacy and numeracy and scientific understanding, and all, you know, that, that's still going to be a fundamental purpose of schooling, I think. It, it's, there needs to be other things happening in addition to that. Um, I, I don't think that will... I, you know, I don't think that will change. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that when, when we evaluate learning in terms of literacy or numeracy and certain levels and whether or not you could work through algorithms and so forth, that might not be enough. It might, it seems like in order to grapple some of these problems and, 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 and find a sense of purpose, we'll still need to acquire it. We'll still need to have understanding of statistics, but that won't be the finish line. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that, you know, and there will, we're starting to see already in a kind of process of, of curriculum thinning in lots of contexts because curricula are massively overcrowded. There's, you know, so much is already asked of teachers in terms of what they have to to get through to help students with the current assessment framework. And, you know, to, you know, when we're asking, you know, anyone who's sort of interested in in advocacy around educational reform, if we're asking teachers to do more of something, then there needs to also be some kind of, adjustment or recalibration. So, you know, whether we can have some curriculum thinning process that begins across multiple education systems, um, I think that that's really necessary. And, you know, to, to your point about mobile phones in the classroom and, you know, the fact that content, it, you know, is so much more easily accessible, that I imagine that's a, you know, a useful starting point for this. Um, that, you know, as we're looking at more, more classroom time being given to the development of, of, you know, particular skill sets, there are certain things that, that can be removed from the curriculum because they can be accessed in other ways. And what is your feeling going towards this idea of, uh, of thinning the curriculum? What's, what's the connection between socio-emotional growth and fulfillment and the ability to determine what one learns about? And, and I guess uh, the question is, is this idea of uh, having the freedom to learn, the, the ability to, to, to learn about what one finds meaningful 
And as well, the tension with some maybe educators who rightly must say, but hold on a second, you don't know what you're interested in until I, until I introduce it to you, right? So, so there, there is a, a perpetual tension there, which I think is okay. But where does socio-emotional growth and learning fall into this? Choice, uh, ability to discover. My question is a little bit awkward, but I, but I hope, you know, when we talk about curriculum, whether, how much freedom there is within that box. So Finland is going through an interesting experiment, I think, around around this, you know, how do, how do you help students construct the curriculum that reflects what they want to learn? And I think if I have understood it correctly, you know, with the Finnish approach, there, there is there is still a sort of national curriculum up to age 14 or age 16, whatever it is. And then after that, you can focus on particular themes like, like the European Union, for example. And then within that topic, there are opportunities for language learning, for history, for economics, whatever it might, however you want to, to, to expand that. And that feels like a really interesting model that other countries might well want to emulate. You know, in terms of the social and emotional learning, there have long been two schools of, schools of thought around this. Well, one is, you know, can you weave the development of social and emotional competencies and behaviours and skills into the existing subjects in the curriculum? Or separately, you know, sh- should it be its own block of time in the curriculum where you're, you know, you're specifically focused on developing empathy and, you know, and all of the others? And I, I think some of the most effective approaches have been able to combine both. So there are, you know, there are certain subjects in most school curricula that lend themselves to the development of social and emotional learning more obviously than others. So, so literature and empathy, for example, or history and empathy is another good one. And, um, you know, um, what, what Canada have done, I think it's in Ontario or Ottawa and Carlton, Ottawa and Carlton, there's a new maths curriculum that came in last year that has a load of social and emotional learning um, skills development incorporated into it. And it's about, you know, it's about working together for problem solving and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's it's both and it helps with going back to that Smithsonian example, it helps with the application of learning to real world problems as well. What are some of the trends that are going to happen maybe in social in uh, city and uh, urban planning? What, what are some of the connections to socioemotional growth, happiness, welfare, getting kids off screens? What are some of the trends that are going to happen in, in the next uh, years or decades? The access to urban nature um, is a really important growth area. You know, the, the kind of the importance of public parks during periods of lockdown last year was really clear in multiple different cities around the world. And I think there's, there's a kind of accelerating understanding of the importance of making sure that, that children have access to nature when they're growing up. And there's a whole other conversation we could have about the intersection of time in nature and, and the development of social and emotional skills. But you know, very broadly speaking, you know, it's important for physical health, it's important for mental health, it's important for childhood development. And so you know, in the US, the Green Schoolyards movement that, that Children and Nature Network and others are really active in is, is really important. And there's interesting Green Schoolyard type movements and initiatives in other um, in, in many other parts of the world too. So I, you know, I think that that's a big important trajectory. The kind of use of public space and how public space, you know, bring you know as a way of bringing people together and addressing issues like you know helping to address you know really important urban issues like loneliness um, and isolation. Um, you know, and so the the importance of public space in city design for social cohesion. Is another you know important trend. I think there's um there's some really interesting work happening around um, wellness promoting real estate 
you know, and that is a trajectory in building design. Um, so I think, you know, our buildings out with, with both physical and mental health issues, both, both for tenants and occupants, and then also for the communities in which the building is located. There's a kind of parallel or connected trend in real estate around, you know, the green building movement and green building initiatives. There's um the, the relationship that, so, so what, by, by 2020, 2050 or thereabouts, more than 70%, of the world's population will live in urban environments. And historically, almost all cities have had, you know, a, a kind of problematic or, or parasitic relationship with the ecosystems that surround them. And we're starting to see that shift. I think city autonomy is another, you know, as in the, the kind of capacity of cities to make decisions about their sustainability policies, about their, their green credentials and how that impacts on quality of life and why people would choose to live there is kind of another really interesting emerging trend as well. So again, you know, like with education reform, it's a really interesting moment for, you know, in terms of thinking about the future of cities, because if we don't get it right, then, you know, the, the problems around you know, the climate crisis, but also some of these other societal challenges that we've been talking about are only going to escalate. And especially if when we have a space where there's a lot of people, they tend to still be by themselves because they're on their phones, whatever it might be. It has to be a way to lubricate conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, so tell us, uh, maybe this is the, the, the et cetera section, the, the things that, that I'd like to maybe ask you about what's on your mind, what are some of the projects that you're going to working on, some things that you're thinking about. What are some of the things that you're thinking about? So we've um, been doing quite, like I said at the beginning, quite a lot of Salzburg Global's work has has, has evolved to, towards networks. So we still do strategic convening where we bring together groups of people for quite an intense experience, albeit online at the moment, you know, and thinking about how do you accelerate new thinking through this kind of period of intense working. What we've also started to do is think, think more about the, the role that networks can play in developing new ideas. And you know, when you're bringing a group of people together on a regular basis, but for a relatively short time, each, each meeting, so 90 minutes a month rather than three days of intense stuff. And, and so that, that's really interesting. The, the network meetings are brilliant, I think, and I'm lucky to work on, on a number of them. And, and so the, the next piece for us will be, you know, hopefully in 2022, when we can invite people back to our base in Salzburg to understand how the relationship between online network meetings and then in-person convening plays. And if you've had a group who've been meeting online um, for a number of months and, you know, have got to know each other and got to that, that sort of trust place of trust and understanding, when they then meet in person, can you go further and faster? You know, because a lot of, so that, that, that's a kind of, just from, from the convening part of my work, that's something which is interesting to explore and I'm looking forward to being part of over the next 12 months. My last question, what books are you reading nowadays? I am reading Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics at the moment, which is, a, I think, is brilliant and really interesting. And I'm reading a, a really great book by Philip Hoare called Leviathan, which is about whales, whales the animal rather than the country. It came out a couple of years ago and about you know, the history of whaling and about Moby Dick and about whales as a species and humans relationship with them, which is really interesting as well. Awesome. I'm always interested because uh, we want to build our own library and uh, and I figure the best way is to have other people curate it. Uh, you know. I would <laughs> very much recommend both Leviathan and Donut Economics 
for different reasons. Yeah, I read Dodon Economics a couple of months ago, I think. Yeah, just tremendously fascinating and accessible book as well. Yeah, that's very, very good. Indeed. And Leviathan, I'll, I'll check that out as well. Yeah, please do. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, I think it's been, uh, it's, it's, it's such an important conversation. Uh, as, as you mentioned, 2020 could have been, you know, the, the perfect storm of, of, of crises and uh, how we come out of it for socio-emotionally, how we come out as a society, how we come out as a species, as, as a member of the planet is critical. So I really appreciate your thoughts on, on, on all these matters. Thank you for listening to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. And thank you, Dominic, for being our guest today. And I really am interested in so much of what Dominic has to say in terms of the socio-emotional skills, in terms of what it means to succeed today and in the future, rethinking what schools are about and how they prepare young learners, but also adults for, again, the world of today and tomorrow. Leave us comments and check out our website, our blog, www.coconut-thinking.design. We always like to hear from you. In the meantime, um, till next time. Bye-bye.